disconnected. <laughs> Just most of the time. How many of you have been blessed lately? God's good, isn't he? It's been a, a, a great weekend. I traveled over from uh, Dayton. I'll uh, tell you a little bit about me before I begin with the ministry. I was uh, born in Charleston, raised down in Raleigh County in a holler. Anybody know what a holler is? Uh, my grandmother raised me, and um, uh, it was it was interesting back in those days when the, there was the. I knew we had a we had a, a vast menu. Um, it consisted of um, two items, seven days a week. Uh, beans and taters, and uh, I was lucky to go to uh, the old Marsh Fork High School, graduate from there. It's uh, it's been torn down for years now, and I went to Marshall on a scholarship and um, had a couple good jobs, uh, good office job, uh, secretary of the whole schmeal. But I'm sitting there and I'm going, there is no way I can spend my the rest of my life doing this. And I joined the police department in Cleveland right at the end of the riots in 69. And um, got an eye opener. Now for a naive country boy that had no idea what uh, the ghetto was like, uh, never had experienced uh, bigotry or racism. It, it just wasn't there. We weren't raised that way. Uh, but then to walk into the midst of it, and I'm not talking about one side toward the other. I'm talking about both ways, but you'd be surprised how, how uh, bad it is in some areas. And um, two years into the job, they handpicked uh, 60 of us to go into a um, high crime, hard impacting uh, unit, actually called the impact unit. 99% uh, of the men right out of the jungles of Vietnam, and here I was teaching martial arts and hand-to-hand -hand, uh, to uh, security people. And um, from there on through the history of the job, uh, made sergeant, SWAT team leader, uh, different uh, undercover uh, units, uh, vice, gambling, prostitution, uh, now, when I mean undercover units, I don't mean we did those things. I mean we arrested people for doing those things. Um, we, I had to clarify that. Uh, you know, sometimes, sometimes people get the wrong idea, you know. Uh, and uh, then, uh, as a lieutenant, staff operations and, and uh, street. But the street was my experience. And um, I learned a lot. I learned a lot about people. Uh, things that I wish I had I learned things that I wish people didn't do, but you can't undo what is. Uh, you can just learn to live with it. And then uh, I pastored a church while on the department uh, for several years. And then I went full-time, pastored in Houston, Texas. I pastored in Ohio, pastored in West Virginia. And, and I'm doing this. Um, I love pastoring, but almost 40 years of it. Uh, the only problem is at my age, being on the road as much as I have, it started wearing on me. Now, for a 39-year-old man, that road is wearing me out. Uh, 
Uh, I mean, it's really getting me. Uh, and I'm every bit of 39. You can get that. Um, but pastoring is, would take more out of me than physically I've got. And if, 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 if you have no idea um, that you need to pray for your pastor because it takes, it takes more than just being physically strong. There's an emotional uh, uh, price that it uh, demands of you. And uh, you add the two of them together and uh, it, is, it is tremendous. And I applaud anyone that is, that is willing to uh, properly pastor a church. Family Ministries began in 1939 um, as a ministry for abandoned, abused, neglected children. Um, where we, let me get around to where I can see here. And that is our, our, our mission. We know that if the devil can tear the family down, he can tear the church down. And uh, he does not like the church. And so we're doing everything we can to keep the family intact. Our new chief executive officer is Brother Jim McComas. Uh, we're excited about having him. He's doing a, a, just a tremendous job. But immediately behind him, the board did something it had never done before. The board hired a chief operating officer, uh, Jim Robinette. Uh, now, if you've never heard of Jim Robinette, and you probably haven't, you may have heard of his wife, Tammy Jones Robinette, the gospel writer, the gospel uh, singer. Um, Brother Jim graduated from Liberty and spent 35 years as a project manager for Ford International. And uh, he is brilliant in organization and management, and that's what we need uh, with a uh, ministry as large as ours. And we're excited to have him with us. That was our first uh, building. Uh, on the first day, they brought in three girls. One of them was named Trula Gunter. Uh, Trula was 12. They raised her until she graduated from the local high school valedictorian and then sent her to the Bible college. At the Bible college, she met a man by the name of Dan Cronk. They eventually got married and spent 25 years as missionaries to India. That's a good way to start a ministry, don't you think? Uh, and, and that's what we've been doing all along. We're not only providing homes uh, uh, for these children, we're trying to educate them, we're trying to uh, bring them to the Lord and then see that they bring glory to God with their lives. That's our goal and that's what we're really working at. Give you an example, uh, in a five week period here this last month or last month and a half, we had eight young men at our Greenville campus saved. Uh, it's gotten to the point that one of the men that had been with us when, he, when his mother died, he was 12, he came to be with us. Uh, we had the, the boys on our campus in Greenville, girls were in houses out in the community. There might be five in a house over here, three miles, and, and, a, and five in a house over that way, six miles. Uh, but uh, Ivan got his eyeballs on, you know what, you know how it is when you, you know, you get, you know, hey, I can I I see you, you know. Don't hug her like that. Just, just, just see her. But at any rate, when they left there, they grew up and left, they got married. Ivan went into the ministry, was pastoring a church, and uh, a couple weeks ago, they brought Ivan on board as our campus uh, chaplain and pastor. 
so they moved back home where they were when they were teenagers and being raised uh, to help us with our kids because we've got so many getting saved and so many that need to be nurtured. The worst thing in the world is see a young person saved and turn your back and let them fend for themselves. Uh, they, need, they need to be nurtured. And so we've got that going there. That is our um, um, administration building in Greenville. If you ever get a chance to go down there, go down, look it over. They'd love to have you come in. Look at the mountain range that's a mile behind us. And we're, only, we're about an hour or less from Dollywood, the same mountain range that runs through there. Um, and I'll tell you more about that in a little bit. Um, some of the homes that we've got there that our kids live in, uh, Nizwanger at the bottom is being recertified for our drug and rehab program. We had a nurse ask once what our uh, success rate was with our rehab program because she said she worked for the government and they had uh, a little less than a 30% success rate. And someone came up later and they said, she's lying. Uh, the very best those government-run programs can do is 10% uh, success rate versus our 90% success rate because the government can't do what we can. The first thing that we do when they come in is we start talking to them about a man named Jesus. And boy, he can change you, can't he? Uh, you know, when Paul didn't lie when he said, uh, when a man is in Christ, he's a new creature. Uh, you know, uh, and, and that's, that's what we try to do with everybody that comes in. A couple of our, we have averaged over 100 young people saved every year in our campus uh, for the last 20 years now. Uh, and that doesn't count those kids that are saved in summer camp. We might have 300 kids in a week at summer camp. There might be 30 of them saved. Those are not included in the numbers. That used to be our school. We've turned it in now to our reception center uh, for our children. This is our new um, school. We were excited when a Free Will Baptist preacher passed away, had no family, and uh, left the money for us to build that school. And when I found out about it, the first thing that hit me is I didn't know Free Will Baptist preachers had money. I didn't. <laughs> so we, we missed that, that turn on that road, didn't we? Some of our stats, uh, from last year, but the bottom is what I want you to look at. Last year, you've got some that'll tell you, oh, we've got 10 kids and they'll boo-hoo-hoo-hoo and all of this stuff about how bad it is and you know what we're trying to do for them. No, no, we, we don't do that. Uh, do I get emotional? Absolutely, I get emotional. But it's not because it's scripted. I get emotional. My parents divorced when I was 12. My dad told me he didn't want me, he didn't want any part of me. That's rough. How would you like to be 12 years old and your dad tell you that? And you got to live with it. And, I was, and, and the way we had to live back in those mountains, I mean, it was rough uh, with nothing. Um, and, and I know what it means to sleep on the floor. I know what it means to go to bed hungry. I know what it means not to have a coat. I didn't have one. Growing up in these mountains, I didn't have a coat. Uh, I wore a sweater until I was in the 11th grade and I had an aunt in Columbus whose father-in-law died, and she sent me his coat. And that's what I wore the 11th and the 12th grade. Um, but I have a problem. Uh, not having, when I was young, I have difficulty getting rid of stuff. It took me over 20 years to get rid of that coat. Uh, 
so some of you know what I'm talking about. Um, you know, I know what these kids are going through. I've been there. And so if I'm emotional, uh, please understand it. Uh, 753 kids we saw last year, abandoned, abused, and neglected. I'm going to tell you about one of these girls, about 13 years old. And when she came, uh, they noticed that every time she would get up to walk around, she would be on her tiptoes. And um, they couldn't understand it because they knew nothing was wrong. And at other times, she would be totally, walk totally flat-footed. And finally, the counselors worked with her and found out what was happening. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to choose my words carefully. I think all of you will understand what I'm saying. She was being mistreated by her father, her brother, and her grandfather. And subconsciously, she determined that if they couldn't hear her, they wouldn't look for her. If they couldn't see her, they wouldn't bother her. And so to keep them from hearing her, she would tiptoe around her house. That's one of the 753 that we took care of. Multiply that hurt in that little girl's life by 753 times. You could never imagine some of the hurt and some of the pain that these kids bring to us. And our counselors are working hard and our people are working hard and pray for our people that are working with them because this is a daunting task to try not just cure but change these lives for the good. We've got, I'm not, I'm not going to stop there. Arkansas came to us and said, we want you to build, to come out here and help us. We've got a problem. Now, we cannot, we don't have the monies to go anywhere. Um, we can't buy property. We can't build buildings. We can't do that. Uh, they have to come up with the means of, of supporting and making this work. And then we get in and do, do the management uh, and, and bring the people in. But they stepped up. And so the first thing they did is we had this building donated to us. Uh, we got it up and running. Uh, then this, that's a drawing of the building, but I'll show you a part of the, the front of it in a moment. Had been a nursing home, had shut down. The owner had died. The son didn't want it. He contacted us. Uh, Arkansas churches raised a million dollars to rehab that building so that we could get it approved by the state to put children in. This is the front of it now. Uh, one of the churches bought bikes for the kids for us at the camp. But the day we opened in 2015, I want you to look. Everything that young man has in the world are in two plastic bags. That's what we deal with. That's what we try to do, is take care of these children. There's an epidemic out there, and it's not the kids' fault. Now, sure, we've got, um, at one of our campuses, we take care of troubled boys. These are not bad boys, bad enough to have to go into some type of a facility. Uh, but they come to us, and let me tell you, that's where the revival has taken place. That's where the changes are being made. And uh, those kids are going to be changed forever, and their parents are going to be changed forever after they come and be with us. This is the ribbon cutting. Um, for that place, uh, well, this is a different one. Um, 
Fort Smith, Arkansas was opening up 7,000 acres that had been military land for public development. Uh, housing developments, uh, shopping centers, new school for Fort Smith. And they contacted us and wanted us to build a campus there like we've got in Greenville. Brother Tim York was our uh, chairman of our board at that time. He went out and said it will take 10 acres to make that, but if you've got 7,000, how about 20 acres in case we have to expand? We couldn't even buy the land. We did not have the money to, to buy. So a family in Missouri had a son that had passed away. Um, he was a businessman, he, didn't ha he wasn't married, uh, and they had set up a trust, and the trust was to help abandon and abuse children. And so this family out of Missouri found out that Arkansas wanted a ministry out of Tennessee to build a campus in Arkansas. And they contacted us and said, we are going to have a, a meeting uh, with the family and we'll decide if we can help you any with that. And so the day that they were meeting, a prayer session was called at our offices. And uh, as soon as they said amen from praying, the phone rang and they picked it up. They gave us the money to buy the land and to build four cottages. Um, and so that's, what the, that, that's it there. Um, this building was not in the original. We didn't have the money for that. That was a, um, that's the administration building and an activity building and a visitation center. Um, the gentleman that does the work that I do out, out west uh, had a business friend who was having a monthly luncheon with some other business people invited him uh, to the luncheon, and uh, one of the businessmen looked at him and said, what do you do for, uh, what kind of work do you do? And Brother Kenny told him. And when he told him, he said, um, will you come over to my office and tell me more about that? And uh, Brother Ken told me, he said, it's the biggest, uh, uh, biggest conference room I've ever seen in my life. As he went over and gave his PowerPoint to this man. Well, there's some things he didn't know about this gentleman. As a young man in the military, he had been stationed at one time at Fort Smith. So he had a love for the people and a love for the area. He also didn't know that he owned 93 Kentucky Fried Chicken franchises and two private jets. And so when he got done telling about that ministry there, he said, what do you need there? And he told him, he just wrote us a check and built that building. Uh, that's pretty good, don't you think? And so that's, that's the, uh, that is our new center there, the activity center. Um, his wife was a Massey, and so she named it after her family, uh, the Massey Activity Center. We have uh, the farm there in Greenville, and we use horse therapy for the kids. Any farmers here? Anybody raise horses? Uh, when you raise animals and you're working with the animals, you, you don't think about your problems. And so it helps heal these kids. And uh, one thing that I've found out, children only want three things. They want to be secure. They want to be loved. They want to be kids. That's it. Their lives aren't complicated. You know, they just want three things. And we try to give them that. We give them absolute security when they come there. Uh, nothing to fear. And, and food and, and a place to stay. We give them unconditional love, and uh, we, we let them be kids. Of course, there are parameters, but, um, uh, you know, when you let them be kids, you don't know what you're going to get. 
but it didn't hurt the, her or the horse, did it? It didn't hurt the horse. Some of our animals down there, I like these guys. I was down there several weeks ago and they got out and it was a roundup, like a rodeo trying to get those guys. The Oaks is our retreat center a mile behind uh, our campus, right in the, the foot of that mountain. Um, 200 acres. Um, Brother Darrell is our director. We've got 20 campsites if you want to take a camper down there. Again, I said you're only, you're less than an hour from, from Dollywood, from Gatlinburg. Um, all the hookups are there. Uh, all, all of the rest of the buildings are log. Um, this is our tabernacle. Uh, Caddy cornered across the road from it is, um, I'm hitting the button. And the button's not working. There we go. Caddy cornered across the road from it is our uh, dining hall. We can seat 150 inside. Um, the girls' cabins go uphill from the dining hall. The boys' cabins go downhill from the, uh, the church. Uh, they'll hold five to eight people inside. This is Jack Creek Lodge, which is up on the hill. Uh, beautiful setting. But here will give you an idea how big it is. Look at the rocking chairs across the front. And from the front of that porch to the back, to the door going in, is 30 feet deep. Um, and there are motel-type rooms down the side of it, and they'll hold uh, anywhere from, from three to five people in them. Uh, fireplace on front. Uh, I love going down there. Uh, I've got churches in, uh, down in southern Ohio, down in West Virginia, that will collect things for me to take. Um, and I'll wait until I get a truckload, uh, usually, to take down uh, because it's expensive to travel, take, you know, two days of travel and spend the night down there and, you know, for food and everything to uh, take a load down. Um, but when I do, I call them and they get me a room, they set me a room up there at the lodge and I'll be the only person staying there, nobody else in the whole camp. And uh, I'll come out and sit on that porch with my lemonade and my Bible and uh, by that fireplace and look out across the mountains and... Uh, we were talking earlier about God's beauty. And I sat there and looked across those mountains and I'm going, oh, he, he did it right. He painted it right when he painted this. Some of the games, you've got youth that want to go down. Some of the activities we've got for them there uh, to take part in. Um, we've got the playground. We've got two zip lines. Um, a full-size swimming pool with a water slide, um, the volleyball, the horseshoes, um, and nearby for the summer camp, the kids that are being baptized, they take them over here uh, for summer camp uh, to have baptism. I'm gonna, young man, would you come here, mama? Mm-hmm. I need twenty dollars. You got, you got twenty dollars? You do? No, I don't need that. Here, take a look at that and pass it around for everybody. let everybody pass it around. And look at it. I told you they like to be kids, right? Hope Center is for girls who are in crisis pregnancy. Um, they come to us uh, as an alternative. 
Some of them haven't decided where they're going to, they want to keep the baby or not. Uh, and the first thing that we do is we give them an ultrasound and let them hear the heartbeat and see uh, the baby. What you're looking at is an, is an exact size of a 12-week embryo. Now, when they tell you that it's a gob of flesh, I want you to understand something. At 12 week, all of the, all of the organs are formed, all of the toes, all of the, the, the fingers, eyes, nose, ears, everything is there. The little rascal, if he wanted to, could uh, uh, wet his diaper if he had one on, and he feels pain at 12 weeks. When they tell you they don't feel pain, it's simply because they can't hear them scream as they're cutting them apart on the inside but they feel pain. That is a living human being at 12 weeks. That's a living human being at the moment of conception. Um, first thing, the first thing that happens when anybody finds out, and even in church, you find out this a girl is in trouble is, are you ready? Everybody got your feet off the floor? Amen? And I dare you to pick up your Bible and show me one time where anyone brought to Christ having done something wrong, even those caught in the act, that he looked at them and he said, shame on you, you shouldn't have done that. You're not going to find it one time. Because he knew, anybody here ever make a mistake? Anybody? And when you turn and go to somebody, you don't turn to them for them to beat you around the ears because of it. You turn because you need help because of it. And even though we don't condone what they did, it's done. It's done. It's, it, you know, it, it's like standing in the middle of, a, of New York City in a 20-story building and somebody jumping off the top of them and you're standing there on the street going, well, shame on them. They knew better than that. They were too old to jump off of that building. Hey, they jumped. Now, you got one or two choices. You can let them splat or you can figure out some way to try to stop them from getting hurt. The girl has already gotten in trouble. You can't undo that. Now, what are we going to do about it? Well, we counsel with them. We give them classes, parenting classes, skills classes. They get points for those classes. We help them with their maternity needs. All of this is donated stuff. Uh, I, mean, I mean, it's all donated. And then when the baby comes, we make sure they get a layette. Then we try to help them with all their diapers and their formula and everything that they need as long as they need it until they can get going and taking care of themselves. We've been averaging over 100 babies a year. We're talking about 1,500 babies saved from being aborted since that ministry started. That is our Hope Center. The building next to it, businessman, his daughter had come to us for trouble. Uh, and after, any grandparents here? Changes your life, doesn't it? And when the grandbaby came, that granddaddy uh, had his heart touched, and he found out something. We had no way of helping a homeless girl that came to us. These girls on the street get in trouble. Uh, we, we couldn't take care. We can't put her up anywhere. Uh, so her only alternative was to go have an abortion. And we prayed and prayed and prayed about it. Well, he bought and gave us that building. Now we're in the process of converting it. That's the back of it. You can see we've got a new roof on it. That's all completed now. I don't have a new picture. Uh, we're converting that. That's the back of, of Hope Center again. Uh, we're converting that into 
uh, five small, uh, identically furnished apartments for homeless girls that come to us so that we can make sure that she's safe, that baby is safe until we can get her a job and get her moving on. Uh, COVID has hurt a lot. We were about 150,000 short of having all that we needed to complete that work. We were, we were shooting toward July to get it open, but because of COVID, you know, that put us back that far. So pray for us that we can get this finished so that we can have a place to save those babies and give that girl a place to stay. And it's gonna be more than just providing for the baby. I mean, when she comes, sometimes all she's gonna have is what she's got on her back. She might have a little plastic bag with some stuff in it and that's gonna be it. So we're gonna to have to provide all of, the, all of the things that a young lady needs that's in trouble. Uh, per, personal clothes and everything that she needs for herself. Some of our workers and volunteers, and these are some of the babies that were born to some of the girls that came to us. Um, I gave you, that's been going around. I didn't change the date on that, but last year we served 361 families, gave out almost 1,800 packs of diapers, 1,271 packs of baby wipes, 98 babies born. Um, I, I'm, I'm just excited about some, what some of the churches has done. I've had churches that would give me stuff. I might fill my car up. I'd take it to my house and I'd put it in my office. Until my office got filled. I'd load up my, my study. The study would get filled. I mean, the uh, garage, and uh, went to one church. He said, I've I got to pick up stuff, uh, uh, stuff for you, and I'm going, oh, mercy. So on a Friday morning, I picked up a van, drove uh, two and a half hours to his church, loaded up that stuff, went back to my house, loaded the van up, left on Saturday morning and drove to Naoma, West Virginia, which is down on Route 3, just this side of Whitesville, where the mine blew up a few years ago. Drove down there, a lady unloaded an SUV worth of stuff into the van. Uh, I left there, drove to Summersville. They unloaded another SUV. I spent the night. Sunday morning I drove uh, outside Beckley. They, they, they never got supplies for us. They would always just give us checks. And not only did they give us checks, but they gave us $4,000 worth of pull-ups. We had, I had stuff, pushed everywhere you could push in that van. And I had a big rental van, I even had netting to keep so that it wouldn't fall in on top of me as I drove. We figured that one van load was $15,000 worth of baby supplies that I took down for those children. Now, if you think about baby supplies, you go, man, what do you, what do you we, we don't have to give you anything. You got, how long will $15,000 worth of baby supplies when you've got almost 400 babies you're taking care of? What are you talking about? Three weeks maybe with it at the most? Uh, but God has managed to, to help us get through some of these things. Um, I, I, got a, I went to a, a yard sale one Saturday morning in Dayton, and um, they had baby supplies, and, and I bought a box of uh, 72 onesies that they had, and I completely loaded the trunk and the back seat and the passenger seat with packages of diapers and uh, out of my own pocket, and then went to West Virginia for service on Sunday morning and then drove down and met them 
and in Greenville and unloaded that on Sunday afternoon and they were in tears because they had just given out their last package of diapers and they didn't know if they had anything in budget for them to get another package of diapers. God knows exactly how to do it, doesn't he? Can, can, you, can you outdo God? Can you? I, I, I can't. Just like those buildings. You know, people see those buildings and they say, why, why do you need my $2 if you've got people paying that kind of money to put property up? Well, they write that off in taxes. They're done with it. They, they're done with it. But somebody's got to pay for the staff. Somebody's got to pay the utilities. Somebody's got to pay the maintenance on it. And, and that, that falls down to us. And I want to say this before I go any further. Everything that you see being done is not us. It's not us. All we are are the middle people. It's the churches and their giving and their hearts and their prayers that make it possible for us to be the middle people to do the work that they've paid to be done to help these children. Okay? We're, we're, it's not us doing this. That's our ultrasound system. We're hoping to get a second one and get it certified. I love this. Old pictures. Um, but um, I like it because you get a before and after. And when I look at those eyes, I, the only thing that hits me is, wonder how close that woman was to getting rid of that beautiful little baby when you see that. Every year we have a Christmas party. We invite all of them back. And uh, so we want them to call us, tell us who's coming so that we can try to raise the money. All the monies raised for that are entirely different than any of the other monies donated. It's money that has to be specified for that. And they try to get enough to buy every child coming back for that visit for that party. A new pair of shoes, a new coat, toys, uh, and then that naturally all the party stuff that they get while they're there and they're taking pictures. But this next picture, uh, I want you to look at this. I want you to look at the beauty and just imagine how close she might have been to been put in a bucket and thrown out back. That's what we do. That's the reason we've changed our name from Free Will Baptist Children's Ministry to Free Will Baptist Family Ministry because we deal with them before birth, then after they're born, if there's a problem, we're there. As teenagers, we're there. Young people, we're there to help them. And uh, then as they get older, we've got three assisted living complexes. We've got one in, in uh, Wise, Virginia. Uh, we've got one in Irwin, Tennessee. And we've got one in Limestone, Tennessee. We also have a 20-bed dementia center at that facility. Uh, so that's covering the full aspect of a family. Now, there are different ways that you can help. Uh, you know, it's completely up to the church. This one was my idea here, uh, the four quarters, because you've got a lot of little churches that can't budget, can't do anything. And I simply tell them, just put a bucket out and drop four quarters a week in there. Uh, you know, just about anybody can throw four quarters a week in a bucket for us. 
And then uh, next year when I come back, you know, just write me a check. That, that, it's not hard on the little churches. First church, or first time I was at this church last year, as soon as the pastor gave me, called me up when I got, first got there, uh, he gave me the check and the youth group surrounded me and had prayer. They understood the importance of praying, not just for me as safe travel out there on that road, but for our ministry, that God keep using us as his tool out there to accomplish uh, taking care of these children. Um, churches, I gotta tell you this one real quick. I was in a conference in Ashland, Kentucky. About six weeks later, I was uh, down in West Virginia. I checked into a, a motel on, in uh, Huntington. I'd been in a um, conference in uh, Charleston on Friday night, conference Logan on Saturday morning. I was getting ready to leave my motel on Sunday morning to have church in Huntington. I had church scheduled in Catlettsburg, Kentucky on Sunday night. This preacher called me and he said, I was at the conference. God dealt with my heart. I challenged a church three weeks ago. We're having a baby shower after church today if you can get down here. I have to confess, I did not keep the speed limit. From the time I left that church on Sunday morning till I got down there to get that picture and then get back to Kettlitzburg that night. But they did that in, in three weeks. Uh, the church got that together for us. This was a Hope in Parkersburg. Uh, Brother Bud Church did that for us. Another church. This one was uh, Cool Ridge outside of Beckley. They had gathered so much stuff for us, I had to go back and uh, get a van and come and get it at the deputy sheriff down there. Um, VBS, little church down beside the road, uh, down in the uh, uh, mountain part of southern uh, Ohio, called Turkey Creek, Turkey Creek Free Will Baptist. Uh, last year I was there and that little youth group raised $500 for us. And so when they gave me the check, I took the picture and I put it in my, my uh, PowerPoint, not knowing when I went back this year that I had their picture on my PowerPoint. And so as I showed my PowerPoint and everything, and then uh, the youth leader got up. Pastor d doesn't know, what, you know how much they're raising or anything. That's up to the youth leader. Youth leader got up. The pastor's standing over here crying uh, last year when I took this, they took this picture because that little youth group had raised $1,000 last year. They decided they were gonna do more for us. But that little group of kids uh, down in the country did that. A lot of kids get involved. I like this guy. Uh, little Isaiah Hatfield, uh, down outside of Logan, West Virginia. There's uh, about four of them about that age. He was about three, a little over three. Um, they run about 18 people in the church, but they'll come up to you before Sunday school to get your change and every month they send us a little check. But then after Sunday school, just before worship, they come back again. And he will get in front of you and he will stand there with that bucket like that until you put something in it. So everybody, everybody realized, they, they soon learned, they better keep something after, you know, to put in the second bucket also, or you better get ready to borrow some money because that kid's not leaving until you do something. They get a kick out of it. Gift cards, always in, in order. And with this one, I'll close up. We got them when they were in 16. They were two years old, they're twins. 
They had been neglected so bad, neither of them could walk, neither of them could talk. The little boy was so hungry, he was eating the wood off of his baby bed. They had to put him in, they called us about 4 o'clock in the morning, the authorities, when they found him. And um, they had to put him in immediately for surgery, and he was in, a, in intensive care for several weeks. Uh, but a year later, we, we managed to place them in foster care. And, um, and we, we actually run about 130 kids in foster care that we're monitoring, that we take care of. But a year later, we were privileged to be there when a Mennonite minister and his wife, who were empty nesters, uh, decided to adopt these kids and give them a chance in life. Uh, but those are the nickels and the dimes and the quarters that those kids raise when they go around uh, with that bucket or, or these other people give. That's what, that's what does this, okay? Any questions on family ministry? There's a table out there with some literature. Help yourself to it. And if you've got any questions, please, after service, ask me. What time do you normally? <laughs> well, no, no, no. I don't want to do that. Uh, okay. Because there's an old adage, um, the brain can only handle what the seat can endure. <laughs> uh, stand with me for just a moment, and uh, then I, I want to go to a, a, a text. Um, and I'll, I'll try not to be too long with it, but it... Uh, given the songs that they sang this morning, uh, I'm just so excited about it. Um, Father, we thank you for the goodness you've shown us and uh, the privilege of being here. We thank you for the attention of this uh, congregation. Thank you, Father, for the music we heard and for the fellowship that we've experienced. Thank you for loving us. Be with us, Father, as we spend this day in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Luke 15th chapter, and, and I'm, I'm going to try to go quickly. Um, notice I use the word try. When you read the book of the prodigal son, the story of the prodigal son, uh, usually there's just the focus on, on that. But as I studied the Bible, I saw some things here, and um, it's not that I'm smarter than anybody else. I would never say that. Uh, but that's the reason when you pick up 20 commentaries on one work, you might get 20 different views. And it's not that anyone is any smarter than the other. It's just that God allowed one man to see something he didn't allow another man to see. Uh, that's all. And as time goes on, there are going to be people going to see more and more and more. Uh, but it would take an entire book just to address all of the thoughts that are in this chapter. I'm, I'm serious. But I want to try to be brief. I'll not give you a whole book's worth um, to try to address some things here. First, to whom was he speaking? And what was the point that he was trying to get across? Uh, those, those issues are, are, are never addressed. 
And as I looked in all of the commentaries that I've got, and, and I've, I have a tremendous library and then access in a computer, I've never seen anybody uh, look at it like this. Verses 1 and 2 tell us who he was talking to. Publicans and sinners, Pharisees and scribes. And as he was talking to them, uh, why, why was he saying the things that he did? Well, when I look at the, uh, those two points right in front of the prodigal son, then I realize there, there is a single thought here that he's bringing over. And why is he trying to bring this one thought over to these people? So I go back to who they are, and I research these people. And I find out that with the Pharisees, there's an interesting little thing. Pharisees began nobly uh, to try to fight uh, the Hellenistic movement that was coming into Judaism. Uh, these were not priests. They were, uh, they were just uh, laymen that were um, determined. And um, there were two schools that eventually uh, came out uh, in the Pharisees, two different thoughts, uh, thought groups. One was led by Hallel, the priest. Hallel was the great-grandfather of Gamal, the teacher of Paul. Hallel, uh, Rabbi Hallel taught uh, that you need to get, if you want people to follow God and to obey God, the first thing you need to do is get people to love God. Uh, that, that's pretty good. But he also taught that people needed second chances. And even though the law had developed to the point of being uh, so ritualistic and, and, and so ruthless, um, he felt that people needed to have, uh, to be forgiven. And get, anybody here ever had to have a second chance at anything? Ah, three of you. Well, the rest of you just hang on. You're, you're going to need it sooner or later. Uh, and anybody here ever need forgiveness for anything? Well, Hallel thought that people needed to be forgiven. They needed to be given second chances. But then, beside, along here comes uh, Shalel, another rabbi. And Shalel's teaching was absolutely not. If the law said that you stone them for doing that, you stone them. If the law said that you, uh, uh, you throw them out and they're never allowed back again, you throw them out and they're never allowed back again. Uh, there are no second chances. You get one shot. Well, it would be a rough world to live in if we, we had one shot. None of us would be here, would we? Uh, but that was what he was addressing. And, and, and I see that he was addressing this second group, uh, people who were hard-nosed and did not believe. And I was driving this morning from the motel over here, and all of a sudden it hit me. Now I understand. All of these lessons, all of these things that we see Christ doing when people are brought to him having done wrong, and he simply tells them, just go and don't do it again. Can you imagine how angry these people were getting at Jesus? Every time that they would see him, do that. You don't do that. You stone that rascal. You don't give him another chance. And here they come with this. Another thing to keep in mind is society at that, that time was called a dietic society. Um, it, it had two different elements. The first element, the most important, was family. You did nothing to embarrass your family. You did nothing to hurt your family. You did nothing to, um, 
to offend your family. You did nothing to, uh, to diminish uh, them in the community at all. You did nothing to do that. Secondly, you, the same thing toward your community. You did nothing to embarrass your community or diminish the, the impact of your community. Because if you did, they would catch you out away from your house and they would gather around you. And when they gathered around you, they would have a kangaroo court. And they would have uh, clay jars uh, full of uh, nuts and seeds. And if they declared you guilty, they would throw those jars down and break them. And they would declare gesesa. The word was gesesa. When they declared gesesa, you were banished for life. You could never come back to that village that you lived in. You could never come back to the home that you were raised in. There was no forgiveness if Gesesa was being declared upon you. And so to this group with this hardline attitude, set lock-jawed teeth, he starts, and he gives them the first one. Hey, there's a white guy having a uh, hundred sheep and he lose one, and he finds it, uh, and he gets his friends and he celebrates uh, about it. He said, uh, oh, by the way, did you know that when a sinner repents, there's rejoicing in heaven. Now, why would he throw that in there? Oh, and what woman having 10 coins losing one would not get a candle, look for it, find it. When she gets it, calls her friends, comes in, they celebrate. Oh, by the way, did you know that when a sinner repents, there's rejoicing in the presence of angels? You think he's starting to make a point? Forgiveness and rejoicing. It pleases heaven when a person repents. It pleases the Father when someone is brought back into right relationship with him. Then he starts on the prodigal. The younger said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that faileth to me. And immediately that group would have said, Gesesa. All that young man was entitled to that third of the, the father's property, but he was entitled to it when his daddy died. Because by him looking at his daddy and saying, Father, I want my share of what you're going to give me when you die now, he was saying to his father, you're as good as dead to me right now. You count no more to me than that. You are a dead man in my mind. You could not offend your father any worse than that. And so immediately that group said, Gesesa. And then it says he divided, Gesesa. Shame on him for doing that. So that boy's got two Gesesas already against him. He's already banished twice in the minds of these people. And then it says, and not many days hence, he, uh, he gathered all and took his journey into a far country, Gesesa, because he went to the Gentiles. And he wasted his substance with riotous living. His brother even says that he spent it on Gentile women. Gesesa. Man, this boy's getting himself into a fix, isn't he? In their mind. That boy had no chance at all of ever coming home to them. Can you see the anger that's coming out here? Hang on, we're going somewhere. And he spent all Gesesa. Because when it said he spent all, he had a right to a third of the family's property. And under Jewish law, Every 50 years, when, in the Jubilee, 
whatever land had gone out of a particular family was returned to that family in the year of Jubilee because God wanted it to stay in that family forever. But it could not come back to the family if it went over to a Gentile. And so he lost a third of the family's property forever. Not only that, they were agricultural, which meant he, he just immediately cost his family a third of their income forever. Gasesa. One thing that I see about this young man when he says, give me, is he's just like the young people of today. They are a me and me only generation. I don't care about you as long as I'm happy. I don't care about my parents as long as I get what I want. I don't care about the people next door. I don't, I don't care about you as long as I get what I want. But then it says, he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, Gesesa. Took him into the fields to feed swine, Gesesa. The Jew wasn't even allowed to be around pigs, much less feed them. But then look what happened. And he would have filled his belly with the husk that the swine did eat, and no man gave unto him. He was starving to death. He'd spent everything. He found out something that's real. And young people, listen to me. The world will love you, and they will care for you, and they will just laugh with you all day long, as long as you have something that they want. But as soon as they get what you've got, they don't need you anymore. Are you listening to me? Your character, you're only going to get one time in life. Your reputation, you're only going to get one time. And if you allow someone else to ruin that for their joy, you will never get it back. And they will laugh at you all the way. And so now starving to death, we now find that he does something. He came to himself. And he said, how many hired servants of my father's have bread enough to spare and I perish with hunger? I love this, this verse. I will arise, go to my father and will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee and I'm no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. He did something that is difficult to address today. He assumed full responsibility for his behavior. When I got in front of God and I knelt down, confessed my sins, I couldn't say, God, I did it because of so-and-so. I did it because of this influence. All I, all, I, all I could say was, God, I did it. And when you stand in front of God and give an account of your life, you cannot say to him, God, I did it because they made me do it. No, 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 no. You're going to answer for yourself. You and you only will answer for that. But what makes this so difficult today is that we have been taught from, for the last 40, 50 years in psychology, that you're not responsible for your actions. Somebody else has done something that has caused you to be like you are. Mama didn't rock you enough. Daddy didn't play ball with you enough. They didn't give you big enough of an allowance, and that's the reason you're acting out the way that you act out. No, you're responsible for your actions. 
You got up this morning, you decided whether you were going to take a shower or not. You decided whether you were going to put your shoes on or not. Not somebody else. And if you sin today, you're going to decide whether you're going to sin or not. Not somebody else. That's your decision. This young man finally fessed up to it all. He said, I'm going to go and tell them. I told you I was going to go fast. Take this and build on it, brother. Work on it. I want you to look at him now. Starving. That robe is dirty. Rottening off of him. It's got stuff out of the pigsty up on it. No sandals. Slopping in that slop where the pigs are living. And if you've ever been around pigs, let me tell you, you don't want to walk barefoot where they live. Uh, they don't clean house. And it is messy. So I want you to look at him. I want you to look the dirt and grime. I want you to look at the hollow eyes. I want you to look at the sunken cheeks as he's headed toward home. You see, there's something interesting here. This young man knew about Gesesa. He knew what the community was going to do. But somewhere in the back of my mind, he also knew if he could get to daddy, it was going to be okay. He knew daddy could do something. Oh, I hope you stand with me here. But I want you to see him as he's heading back home. And then you look down and it said, But when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. I'll not finish the rest of it out, but I'm going to stop right there. Because the, the bottom line, the title of this message would be the kiss of the father. And before I bring you to him during the kiss, I have to explain what the kiss is all about. Under Jewish custom, we go all the way back to Jacob and Esau to get the real picture of it. Jacob had stolen Esau's birthright. He had stolen his blessing. Esau was going to kill him. Rebekah warned him. Esau ran, went over to Laban. Or, or Jacob ran, went over to Laban. He married Leah, had children. He married Rachel, had Joseph. He had children by both of their handmaidens, but he wanted to go home. Yet he knew that going home meant he had to face Esau, the brother that was going to kill him. How was he going to do that? How was he going to do it? So as he approaches where Esau is, he puts the handmaidens and their children in front of the group. He puts Leah and her children there. And he puts Rachel and Joseph in the back. So if Esau starts killing up front, maybe, just maybe, he's got enough time to grab Rachel and Joseph and run. But as he approaches the stream, here comes Esau with 
hundred fighting men. Ain't no getting away from that. And Esau comes up to him and took him and gave him a kiss. Because Jewish custom was it didn't matter how much animosity there was between two people. It didn't matter if it, if it was even at the point of one wanting to kill the other one. If the one offended got to the point where he was willing to walk up publicly and give the other one a kiss, he was saying to the whole world and saying to that one that had offended, it's over. It's over. We're restored. It's all good now. <laughs> oh, look. When the father grabbed the son and he gave him the kiss, he said, it's over, son. It's over. Welcome home. And he told that whole community, it's over. It's none of your business. This was between me and him. That whole community was gathering to call Gesesa and banish him for life. But the father said, it is over. Amen. The devil is after you and is after me, but God, looking down through eternity, saw you and me standing at the gate, ready to leave this world, and all the devils of hell waiting to call Gesesa. But he sent his son to die on a cross so that he could put his arms around us and say, it is over. Amen. And gave us the kiss and called us into fellowship with him. There's a couple thoughts there that I want to leave with you that are really worth developing. When the father left the house under Jewish custom, that was a no-no. If they knew that the community was going to call a Gesesa on one of their kids, the father never went out to argue. The mother did. But we read here that the father did. Second thing, he ran. And according to the Mishnah, it says, an honorable man does not run. Because to run, he would pick up his gown to keep from tripping, his robe. And picking up his robe, he would expose his ankles, and that was a shame. So he put himself to shame. Look at what Jesus did. He left the Father's house. He came down, something that had never been done. He put himself to shame for us by going to a place called Calvary. Oh, did I tell you? that there's rejoicing in heaven when a sinner repents? Did I tell you that there's rejoicing in the presence of angels when a sinner repents? Oh, and did I tell you that it pleases the Father when a sinner repents? Bow your heads with me. No one looking. I'm going to call the pastor. I know that he has his way of leading a, an altar service, but I'm going to call him to at this point.